we saw a group of musicians sitting in the middle of the camp. We were all surrounded with barbed wires, and I was asked to sing, and I was very cold. It was November, it was in the woods. I had a very light uh, sh cotton shirt with short sleeves. I had no jacket, and I was just trembling with the cold, and they asked me to sing, and I just was trying to get out of it. And they said, well, there's an order from the Nazis, and you must go out there. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 9, Judgment and Revenge. After the Vilna ghetto was liquidated, Henny Dermashkin Gurko was sent to a series of concentration camps, finally ending up in Landsberg, a sub-camp of Dachau in Germany. I walked out into the men's camp where they were all sitting, a few musicians. There were benches all around where SS was sitting and expecting the concert to take place. I walked over on this big, gigantic uh, lot and walked over to the uh, violin player and he asked me what will I sing and I said I will sing Schubert's Eliza Flea and Meine Lieder and that's what I sang. And from then on, we like organized and sang gradually for the camp and started singing all over the camps. Of course, I started to sing all the Yiddish ghetto songs. The Nazis loved listening to it, although they didn't understand. Es gehen Pegunach, und nun sie salz noch schwer, es jagt der Beiserwind, erschrecklicher Ratzin. It was pathetic to look at the people when I sang those songs, the men were crying. And um, it was a small group, uh, they were like eight people, eight musicians. From then on, we were performing on a steady basis, and we were going from camp to camp, performing for the inmates, the inmates and the Nazis. We saw, at one point, we saw American planes flying over Dachau, and we were just praying that they should throw a bomb for a certain confusion that we could run somewhere to run, but it didn't happen. We had to go out of Dachau and walk. And we were walking day and night. We thought they're bringing us to kill because that's the way it felt. I remember at one point we passed homes, German homes, 
seeing them sit outdoors, and some of them were eating out on tables. Like they had normal lives, and we were just like walking without food, without water, with not proper clothes, it was freezing. We were walking five to a row, and we got so tired that at one point I was falling asleep while walking, exhausted. And once I walked off the road because I, I dozed off, and I went on the grass, and one of my friends grabbed me. I should go in among them because they would shoot me. They would think I want to run away. We walked about three, four days. Once a German passed by us, just came across and he said, Kopf hoch, a Freiheit kommt. Uh, you know, hold your heads up high, freedom is coming. We walked like this day and night and uh, we came to a camp and uh, they told us to go in that camp. It was a camp of um, Polish people. And the next day, which was May 1st, 1945, the Americans came and we were more dead than alive. I couldn't move, me that I was so full of life always, and, and tried to hold on to life with all my might, with the less strength. I had just broke down and I was laying on a table they put me. And this American came in, an American soldier, and he gave us something to eat and I said, and I said, why did you let us wait so long? That's all I remember. And I passed out. Germany surrendered on May 7, 1945. The next day, the Allies divided control of the country. Some of the Jews who had survived the war began to make their way toward the American sector of Germany, looking for ways to get out of Europe. One of them was Mira Verben from Vilna. Mira had spent months with the partisans in the forest before Vilna was liberated. She was 26. Her parents and sister had been killed. Mira left Soviet-occupied Vilna planning to go to Palestine. She bribed her way across borders, traveling through Grodno, Bialystok, Lublin, and eventually to Bucharest, Romania. There, her plans changed. There was a group forming. Their goal was revenge on the Germans. They asked if I was willing to join, it would mean putting off Aliyah to Palestine, more wandering around, more uncertainty. It wasn't clear how it would end. They talked about revenge, but they didn't say exactly what, and I did not ask. I really believed in it. And I wasn't ready to leave Europe. I kept hoping maybe... Maybe, maybe, I would find someone from my family. 
The plan was to go to Germany and hide the fact that we were Jewish. We would have to form relationships with Germans to sit in coffee houses with them and chat. Our group arrived in Nuremberg. In total, we were seven people. Nuremberg was completely destroyed. It was a pleasure to see. I went to the German League for Consumption Victims. It was run by nuns. My cover story was that I was Volksdeutsch, of German origin, and I was looking for my family, and I was sick and needed to rest. I received a permit to live in Nuremberg. I got an apartment with a widow whose son served in the German army. The widow said she knew nothing about her son's service. But then I saw a large picture of him in his uniform. Another friend arrived at this point. He had come out of the concentration camps very sick and was hospitalized. Then he found out we were alive. So at the last minute he joined us. It was Liebke. In Nuremberg, I lived at Orfstrasse 13. I rented a room from a German woman and her brother. I presented myself as a Polish refugee. Arya Liebke Distel was also from Vilna. He and Mira had both been in the Vilna ghetto underground. He and his brother had escaped from a concentration camp and were hidden by a farmer until the war ended. They were trying to get to Palestine when they learned about the revenge cell called Nakam. Arya's brother continued his preparation to move to Palestine, and they parted ways. Arya joined Nakam. There was a notion that we couldn't let the world treat the Jewish people as if our lives were worthless, with no consequences for murder. We thought of ourselves as acting on behalf of the Jewish people, for those who were murdered. We aimed to implement Plan A and then Plan B. There was also Plan C. Plan A was to reach the water system's nerve center and poison the water in Nuremberg. At the same time, in another part of the city, the Allied countries were setting up a war crimes tribunal. The Nuremberg trials began in November 1945. We had a plan, I I think this was Plan C, to go inside the court in Nuremberg and shoot the criminals as a Jewish protest, taking justice into our own hands. We couldn't get a permit to enter, so then Plan B emerged as an alternative. I was one of the contact people, and I was traveling all over Germany from town to town. I was searching for encampments of German military leadership. I told people I was looking for a brother, a sister. Did they have any information? There were camps everywhere. I would get close, mark in my mind the location. I would ask in local shops how many people were in each camp, why they were there, who they were. My memory was much better then. 
Then I would pass the information to our commander, Yulek. One day, my commander, Yulek, came and told me about a bakery in Nuremberg that baked bread for the SS camp. Our headquarters assigned me to start as a worker in the bakery. I went to the employment office of Nuremberg and presented myself as a Jew coming from a family of bakers. I said that I would like to keep the family tradition and that I wanted to work in that bakery in particular. The man looked at me in amazement. I, I knew what he was thinking. What a stupid Jew that still wants to work in a bakery. But at that point, we were in a period of recognition of Jews, and he didn't have the nerve to refuse. I was hired, and I started the next day. A bakery. They gave me a white shirt. The whole thing. Liebke got the job at the bakery. He was very chummy with everyone. He was a hard worker and moved up in his position. They trusted him. I would look at a German worker and wonder if they'd been in the SS. How many Jews had they killed and where? I felt their cold looks and their hatred. There were also young women who, it seems, took an interest in me and wanted to start with me. I felt hatred towards them, too. But I had a dilemma because I had to gain their trust. Of course, I was in touch with my commander the whole time, letting him know what I saw at the bakery. At first, we thought we would inject the poison into the flour sacks, but the idea was rejected because the poison wouldn't be concentrated enough. The second idea was to mix the poison with the dough, but that idea was rejected as well because we thought that the heat of the oven would neutralize the poison. The next idea was to smear the poison on the bottom of each individual loaf. That idea was accepted as the best solution. In the storehouse, I learned their technique of piling the bread. They had a system so it wouldn't fall or get squashed. About a month went by, more. I went with those goyish girls to the movies to have fun, to all kinds of places. I kept thinking tomorrow or in a week or in two weeks they would bring me the stuff and I would do it and get out of there. But it didn't happen like that. Things got complicated with the poison. Abba Kovner was one of the leaders of the revenge cell. He had gone to Palestine to get the poison. He was on a ship on his way back to Europe when he suspected he was about to be arrested. He threw the poison into the sea. The poison disappeared. We had to start all over again. In the meantime, Plan A was tabled because so many Jewish refugees were coming to Germany from Poland and Russia, and they were in so many places, they weren't isolated from the general population. Plan A was eventually dropped. The revenge cell was in a holding pattern. Meanwhile, after her liberation, Henny was transferred to a sanatorium in Germany. We were brought to Sanatorium, which was a hospital in Bavaria, and uh, there were nuns. It was, a, it was a beautiful place, and they brought us to restore our health there, our strength back, and they took care of us. 
in Saint Atelier, we started the orchestra. All the musicians came. Only eight people. We didn't have any instruments. We got instruments. And we were going from DP camp to DP camp, traveling and entertaining. And there were a few more musicians that survived. And uh, they joined the orchestra. And when David Ben-Gurion came to Germany and spoke, we uh, were there with our music. Uh, I sang a lot of uh, ghetto songs, Yiddish songs, and Hebrew songs. Emek ben haslaim, pelek zach nobea, shoshana aduma, al gdota fora. Then we also appeared at the International Tribunal uh, in, uh, at Nuremberg when the Nazis were on trial. We played for the media from all over the world and we wore concentration camp uniforms and the Stars of David while we were on stage. Repeat after me. I mention your name. Ja, Sutskeve, Abram Gerzovich. Citizen of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. Krasdanin, Soyuza. Avram Sutzkever was a Yiddish poet from Vilna. In the ghetto, he had provided Samuel Bach with a sketchbook. He later retrieved Hermann Crook's ghetto diary from its hiding place. Now, he was in Nuremberg to testify before the International Tribunal. He had hoped to speak in Yiddish, but the Soviet authorities did not permit it. Uh, you must sit down if you wish. Sutskova remained standing for his entire 38-minute testimony, which included an account of what the Nazis had done to his newborn child. In the evening when the Germans had left, I went to the hospital and found my wife in tears. It seems that when she had her baby, the Jewish doctors of the hospital had already received the order that Jewish women must not give birth, and they had hidden the baby together with other newborn children in one of the rooms. But when a group with Muir came to the hospital, they heard the cry of the babies. They broke down the door and entered the room. When my wife heard that the door had been broken, she immediately got up and ran to see what was happening to the child. She saw one German holding the baby and smearing something under its nose. Afterward, he threw it on the bed and laughed. When my wife picked up the child, there was something black under his nose. When I arrived at the hospital, I saw that my baby was dead. He was still warm. Does any other uh, chief prosecutor want to ask any questions? Lawyer Dean, Villa Yadayan.
There was no justice and there was no judge. At Nuremberg, they were focused on crimes against nations, citizens of countries. They weren't talking about a genocidal campaign against the Jewish people that was planned from A to Z. The legal process continued, and the revenge cell was waiting to implement Plan B. We were worried we wouldn't get the material. The tension was terrible. Finally, it came. We raised a glass to the guy who brought it. It was already February, beginning of March. I was on pins and needles waiting for the day. Finally, they decided to do the plan on April 13th, a Saturday night. They told me the poison would be in liquid form and that it would have to be mixed. It would be the same color as the underside of the loaves. It wouldn't have a taste or a smell. We had a team of three people. The plan was that I would handle the loaves, someone else would mix the poison, and another person would apply the mixture to the bottoms of the loaves. I would put the loaves back exactly the way they had been. There were two kinds of loaves, round and square. The round loaves were sent to the general public. We realized that some people from the general public might also get poisoned, but that was that. The square loaves went to the prisoners, and the bread was divided in four. The daily ration was a quarter loaf. There were 5,000 SS prisoners in the camp. About a week before the big day, I smuggled the bottles of poison into the bakery. I had experience from the ghetto smuggling stuff on my body, so I put them near my belly, and I had a big jacket. I put them in my locker with my clothes. The action was planned for that night. The rest of us had to leave Nuremberg in a hurry that morning. We did a pogrom in the room I lived in. We broke everything, tore the curtains, emptied the feathers from the pillowcases. I locked my room and threw the keys into the river. We left Germany. It was right before Passover. I wanted only one thing, that Liebke would succeed. That morning, I left cash for the rent at my apartment. I brought my two friends, Yashak and Manik, to work with me and hid them in tall baskets in the storeroom. I worked that day. At the end of the day, I waited for everyone to leave the bakery and hid myself until it got dark. My friends came out to meet me, but there was some clerk moving around. We hid until the clerk went home. We mixed the poison and put it in pots. We each had a brush and we started to apply it to the loaves. We got into a rhythm and I rearranged the loaves back into stacks. Suddenly the guards sensed us. We put everything aside and hid in a hole under the floor. They left without noticing us. We went back and kept going. We had put poison on 2,000 loaves and started to work on the third when we heard the guards coming again. This time they were very close by. I ran to the hole in the floor. My two friends jumped out the window and ran. The guards saw them running, but didn't catch them. 
I was all alone in the hole and waited to see what would happen. They called the police. The police came. They searched and checked. We had hidden the bottles and all the material. The police searched but didn't find anything. They assumed that people must have broken into the bakery to steal white bread, which was expensive. They left, and I hid until morning when I went out through the train entrance. We left for the Czechoslovakian border. We decided to cross the border at night. We came to the border, and the German border patrol arrested us. They brought us into the police station. It was Sunday evening. They asked us what we were doing. It was Erev Pesach. We explained that we were headed to celebrate Pesach with relatives in Prague. Why won't you let us pass? Let us go. We were afraid that they would call the Americans, but they didn't call them because it was Sunday night. Instead, they said, why do you need to go at night? Come to the checkpoint tomorrow and there won't be any problems. The next day, no one questioned us. We took a taxi to Prague. We saw a small article in the Czech newspaper, a very small article, that German prisoners were poisoned in Nuremberg. We sent a comrade to Nuremberg to find out what had happened. She heard that after there started to be symptoms from the poison at the camp, the Americans mobilized all their vehicles to bring the sick prisoners to hospitals to have their stomachs pumped. We were in France waiting for news. We learned that there was a poisoning in one of the camps. There were some deaths, and many people were in hospitals in difficult condition. The military and the police were investigating. There were some minor and some major headlines. We were frustrated by the uncertainty of the numbers. I personally thought whatever we achieved was a success. There were many dangers. Both the Americans and the French had their own secret police and were afraid of traitors and revenge. They wanted to conceal it. They didn't want to publicize it at all. But after a few days, there was an article in a German newspaper that German prisoners were poisoned. The poison came from this bakery. They wrote that they found bottles with poison. They didn't write who had done it, that 200 people died and the rest were treated and survived. According to our calculations, more people should have been poisoned. We did not take into consideration that the Americans would take the prisoners to medical facilities. It was written in the paper that they put their whole operation towards saving these people. There is no evidence that anyone died from Nakam's poisoning operation in Nuremberg. Approximately 2,000 people were made ill, some seriously. In the end, our action was more of a symbolic act. We showed that there was an organized group of Jews that wanted to sentence the Germans to what they had sentenced us to by the same means. They poisoned people. We wanted to poison them. I was very extreme. I did not care who would die, a child or an adult, if that German was guilty or not. I did not care. I was ready to erase them from the face of the earth. 
Our people achieved beyond their ability. They were not military people. They were people from nice homes who went to school, to youth groups, who had wanted an easy life. They went ahead and got it done. No one else did it. It was a big deal. Some people did not believe in us and thought we were a group of dangerous adventurers. But I believed in it. And after the Holocaust, just belonging to this group made me happy. I do not regret it for a moment. Twelve of the 22 German and Austrian Nazis who were tried at Nuremberg were executed. Seven received prison sentences. Three were acquitted. Franz Mürer and Martin Weiss, the top Nazi officials in Vilna, both died free men. In this episode, you heard the voices of Henny Dermashkin Gurko. Mira Verbin, voiced by Rachel Botchen, Arya Liebke Distel, voiced by Eddie Portnoy, as well as an archival recording from the Nuremberg Trials, courtesy of the Robert H. Jackson Center, with an English translation of Avraham Sutzkever's testimony by Justin Cammy, voiced by Claiborne Elder. Next up, Chapter 10, Aftermath. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Liover Zerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>